God created mankind to find our ultimate joy in worshiping and serving Him. One way that God designed for us to do that was to exercise dominion over the earth for God's glory. And one aspect of the exercise of that dominion is the rule of governing authorities. Human rulers are a gift from our Creator. And yet, sin deeply corrupts the exercise of governing power. In God's common grace, our authorities are never as bad as they could be, and God sees to it that every one of them accomplishes some good. But as Satan twisted the thoughts and the ambitions of Adam and Eve, so today he corrupts the thoughts, the ambitions, in the actions of ruling authorities in our world. As the God of this age, Satan labors to influence them to oppose the risen Christ, to oppose his people and his message. We witness this in some of the starkest terms today in places such as Nigeria, where Christians are routinely slaughtered. In China, where the government is now moving, it would appear to crush the very memory of Christianity were it possible in China. Places such as Iran and Indonesia, where rulers use those powers that God has given to subdue the earth, to exercise appropriate dominion, and they use those powers to crush the Christian faith. And in less intense ways, we witness such occasions here in our land. Occasions of opposition, of resistance. Opposition which is not likely to get any better. When we contemplate against this backdrop, the first coming of our Savior, perhaps it's the holiday spirit, I don't know, but... It really pushes us to read this birth narrative as a peaceful, heartwarming event. We love to hear silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, sleep in heavenly peace. Start nodding off, don't you, just hearing it, just feels so warm and so wonderful. Indeed, there was great beauty that night. And also months later, when Magi from the east visited and worshipped the incarnate Son of God in Bethlehem. But whatever of that spirit may have filled those initial months, the story of the infant Jesus soon changed quite dramatically. As the narrative of Christ's infancy unfolds, there seem to be no more silent nights. We seem to hear only the roaring terror of Satan who seeks to devour Messiah. That beautiful, worshipful, heartwarming visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus comes to a close at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 2. But as they leave Joseph and Mary's home in Bethlehem, we hear Satan's roar against God in flesh to take out Messiah however possible. We find in the text that follows, beginning at verse 13, Jesus safeguarded in Egypt. 
Verse 13, as we carry on the account there, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. King Herod refuses to join the Magi in worshiping Jesus as King of Kings. He refuses to rejoice in God's provision, a Messiah sent to crush Satan's head. King Herod's corrupt heart can view Jesus as nothing other than a threat to his rule. Given that authority to exercise dominion over his territory by God, He uses that very power to crush the ultimate gift of dominion exercising power in Messiah. Herod wields his power joining the satanic quest to crush Messiah's head. And it requires nothing less than special revelation to spare Jesus from Herod's plot, a dream angelic message guiding Joseph to travel some 75 miles west-southwest from Bethlehem to Egypt. Egypt was a proper place for this. It was a well-ordered district of the Roman Empire. And also there was many Jews who lived there. Differing views as to how many, but some would say that actually one million Jews lived in Alexandria alone. Other estimates lower, but perhaps millions of Jews living in Egypt, and we do know from sources that there were actual districts in some of these cities that were turned over uh, to the Jews. And so the family would have found it easy to hide themselves among such a Jewish enclave there in Egypt, and outside of Herod's jurisdiction they would have been safe. Herod was king of Judea. He was not king of the empire. And so he had to mind his manners and stay out of where he wasn't welcome. So Joseph's young family could hide here in Egypt for the time and needed to do so, as we find here, until Herod dies, until that threat is gone. We read in verse 14 that then Joseph, obeying that vision, took the child, his mother by night, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So they're slipping out of Bethlehem under the cover of night and Joseph safeguarding Jesus there in Egypt. And here the family remaining until Herod dies. But Matthew sees here something far more significant than just that safety as such. There's a larger salvation historical event that's taking place. He recognizes there, you notice at the end of verse 15, he says this was to fill fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. We should not read fulfilled here in the sense of some one-to-one correspondence of prediction and fulfillment. So we could take, for instance, a very direct um, prediction fulfillment sense in Micah 5.2. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The prophet foretold that. That's very direct. This is a fulfillment that's far more subtle. 
He is drawing here from Hosea 11 and verse 1, which in the Old Testament context, speaking of Israel in bondage in Egypt, says, when Israel was a child, I called him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage is the context here. Hosea is speaking of Israel as God's son, Matthew is not seeing a direct prediction fulfillment here, but he's seeing a larger salvation historical moment. He rightly discerns that Jesus is the ultimate Son of God, not Israel. Jesus is the greater typological fulfillment, the recapitulation of Israel. So Israel is the vine, and Jesus is the true vine. Israel is the Son of God, we see here in Hosea 11 and verse 1. And Jesus is the ultimate, eternal Son of God, capital S. Thus, God's ultimate work of redemption is not the truly wonderful exodus of Israel from Egypt. The ultimate redemption is won by the eternal Son of God, who himself will exit Egypt in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. God carrying out His purpose through Messiah by hiding Him, safeguarding Him here in Egypt. And then His leaving to come back to the promised land to fulfill redemption's plan. This is what Matthew is seeing. So it is Jesus then, not Israel, that is the new locus of salvation. He is the one in whom salvation is found. Everything God did to deliver Israel from Egypt was pointing to this fuller salvation found in Jesus the Messiah as God's eternal Son. It's sad to read individuals who look at this. I read one commentator this week. He said, Matthew sees this connection, and Matthew just simply doesn't know what he's talking about. He made a mistake. He drew from Hosea 11.1, and there's really no connection there whatsoever, and we have to give him some room to make people make mistakes. He doesn't know what he's talking about, and I don't write in my commentaries often. I underline some things a lot, not my commentaries, but in that one I had to write in the margin, you don't know what you're talking about. There's a beautiful fulfillment here as Christ leaves Egypt to fulfill God's redemptive purpose just as Israel left Egypt in his redemptive purpose. And that's what we now see as Matthew unfolds that through the entire book. He's not off track and has just lost his way. He's saying to us at the beginning, watch this one. Watch this Messiah. Where will he go? Jesus will exit Egypt And go on to become God's final sacrifice for sin. The day will come when the Father does not protect Jesus who pays the price of sin's penalty in the stead of his people. And as Matthew closes out his gospel, this same Jesus rises from the dead. The ultimate exodus and ascends into heaven. Exiting earth itself where he now in heaven rules. From that great throne. Oh, Matthew didn't make any mistakes. But he is pointing us to this great 
Savior and this exodus in whom, in, in this Savior in whom we find redemption. And really it forces us right here to ask the question, do you like the Magi worship Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you so worship Him today? Have you received His gift of deliverance from sin? Or are you honestly more like Herod, so consumed with your own life that Jesus is of no consequence to you? You're not a king who can take people out. But he's of no consequence to you. The call here is to follow Matthew's trail. Follow where it leads and come to the place where you place your trust in this sacrificial lamb who dies in the place of sinners turning from sin and trusting in Him. This is the call. This is the Messiah. This is the work of God that He is doing for His people. Well, it does not take Herod very long to figure out that he is in the rearview mirror of the Magi. And he had hoped that they would lead him to the baby Jesus. They do not. And we find then in the second line, of thought here, the infants slaughtered in Bethlehem. So Jesus safeguarded in Egypt, but back in Bethlehem, things do not go well at all. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, verse 7 is calculating Jesus' approximate age by learning when the star appears that led the Magi to Jesus. Herod plotted to deceive them, verse 8, but when he realized that they had fooled him by slipping away without returning to Jerusalem to reveal Jesus' location, Herod flies into a rage. And when Herod flies into a rage, you duck. Look out. He dispatches Roman soldiers with the horrific order to kill every male child in and around Bethlehem, aged two years and under. That probably means, as we study the Greek text, it's not certain, but it probably means boys two years old and under. So those less than two years of age would be another way of saying it. Anyone under two years of age. If Jesus was six months old, a pretty good estimate, I think, in this situation. Again, remember, the Magi aren't at the, at the, at the um, stall. They're not there visiting him that way. They're visiting him at a house. But if he's six months old, what Herod is doing is just making sure. Let's go double that age and cut out every child of that age around Bethlehem in its district. Now, critics jump in here and say, come on, really? This is way too barbaric. This, is, this didn't really happen. It's just a story that the early church made up because of their hatred for Herod and, and wanting people to pity them and things like that. There's no way that he killed these children. Anybody who says that simply has never met King Herod in the pages of history. Herod, let's just talk about him for a moment, but Herod murdered three of his sons. He murdered one of his ten wives. He murdered his own mother. 
He was very capable of this. And when it came to Jews, he was quite comfortable executing large numbers all at one time. But the critics come back and scoff and say, well, there's no record of such a massacre anywhere in the annals of Rome or in the annals of the Jewish writers. It didn't happen. It wasn't recorded. Well, a couple of answers on that. Calculating Bethlehem's population at the time, Bible scholars estimate that at most this would have included about 30 babies. Most think that it was half or less. So 15 or fewer, that's where most commentators would land, is how many infants would actually be in such a small place. So it might not really get the attention of Rome. And secondly, this was King Herod. People were dropping all the time. The body count was no more newsworthy in that day than a similar number of abortions performed in our city would interest our local media. Such things are ignored all the time. It is no wonder Roman soldiers hacking maybe 20 Jewish children to death would not be recorded in the annals of Rome. But that's all cold governmental consideration looking at numbers and statistics and things like that. Down on the ground, it was a very different matter. And we want to weep as we think of verse 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. A couple of R's here that we need to understand. First of all is Ramah. Ramah is a village located on the border between Israel and Judah. At this location, the southern kingdom of Judah was assembled as they set out along the ridge route toward Babylonian captivity. It's at this location, at Ramah, is kind of the collecting point for that departure. Then secondly, Rachel. Rachel was the mother of Joseph and thus the grandmother of the northern kingdom's namesake, Ephraim. They would speak of the northern kingdom as Israel, but sometimes they would just say it's Ephraim. Well, that was Rachel's offspring. Rachel was also the mother of Benjamin. If you look at the southern kingdom, it is made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so Rachel is uniquely connected to both kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And on top of all of that, and why she's mentioned, Rachel's tomb is right here near Ramah. So Jeremiah is speaking poetically when he speaks of Israel's discipline by God and repositioning in Babylon, being taken captive there. He speaks poetically, picturing Rachel as weeping from her grave for her children. She had died, of course, generations earlier. But in Israelite thinking, that never really mattered. She was there, in a sense. And from her grave, she weeps for her children as they go into captivity. Matthew sees that in the prophet Jeremiah and says, that's now. 
Rachel, again, in the vicinity of Bethlehem, in the vicinity of Ramah, her grave, she, in a sense, now again is weeping for her children. But as Jeremiah develops that prophecy in chapter 31, it's not all weeping. Where he tries with his prophecy to dry the eyes of Israel and here to dry the eyes of these families that weep this disaster in their life. And he points them in chapter 33 of Jeremiah to the prophecies of a branch, a sprig, a sprout. Just a a thin, vulnerable, weak sprout out of the tree stump of David's kingdom. So David's kingdom, pictured like a great tree, has been felled. It's been knocked over. It's not there any longer. But the stump is there. And out of the stump comes this frail, fragile sprig. This little shoot that pops up. It shows growth. And it's also very vulnerable. Jeremiah pointing Israel to that branch that would come from David's stump. So Matthew speaking in that same way. He's saying from the Old Testament context, there was to be hope, Rachel. You weep bitterly from the grave of your children, from the grave for your children, but there is hope in God's loving redemptive purposes. And now Matthew says, Here it is, Rachel. Here it is, women of Bethlehem, grieving the loss of a child. Wipe your tears, for there is redemption in your future. Your ultimate hope, you weeping mothers of Bethlehem, is not in your precious children whom you legitimately grieve. Your ultimate hope is in the baby Messiah who will redeem and who will wipe all tears from the eyes of his people. This is your hope. But as those families weep, with intense sorrow, Jesus' family is putting distance between themselves and Bethlehem. Verse 19, we find Jesus raised, that is, he grows up in the city of Nazareth, and we have the account here of how that takes place. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Another dream and angelic visitation, special revelation directs Joseph to go back to the promised land. Herod had died, and with Herod's death, uh, so evaporated the price that was on Jesus' head. So Jesus exits Egypt. And God's plan of redemption through his son continues forward. Verse 21, he arose, Joseph, with his family, he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, perhaps learning that somewhere along the way, reigning in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. I I think it's very probable that Joseph was headed to Bethlehem. 
to go back there where they had family roots, and is that not the best place on earth for Messiah to grow up? In Bethlehem, the city of David, as he is that shoot out of the stump of David. But Herod, at the last minute, changed his will, and soon before his death, placed his son Archelaus over Judea. Archelaus was as dangerous and as vicious as his father. And so with further warning and support in a dream, Joseph decides that he will not stop at Bethlehem, perhaps, but at least in Judea, but will go to the northern district of Galilee. Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. It's really difficult for us to grasp this, and we just need to know the background and understand, but it wouldn't have been hard at all for Jews to understand that Galilee was no place for Messiah. That was no place for the Messiah of Israel to be raised. It certainly would seem. Micah 5.2 would indicate Bethlehem, King David's hometown. That was the place. Or perhaps the holy city of Jerusalem, but at least somewhere in Judea near God's temple. But God providentially led the family to the despised region of Galilee and then to the more despised town of Nazareth. Why was Galilee so despised? Well, among the Jews, among the Israelites, they looked to Galilee to the north. It was far away from the temple of God. That's one thing. Another thing is is that it was very populated by Gentiles who brought into the towns of Galilee their way of life, their false worship, their pagan ideas, their godless ways of life. And so the Jews that would live down in Judea near the temple would look to Galilee and say, why would anybody want to live there? Oh, it was a much easier place to live as well. It was very fertile where Judea was not. And so you can imagine just putting that together, how godly Jews living closer to the temple would just say, people that live in Galilee, what's wrong with those people? It was despised in that way. But Nazareth, of all the cities in Galilee, was perhaps the most despised of all. And why is that? Well, where it was situated, Nazareth was situated on the international highway that ran ran down the coast of Israel. So it would connect Syria and all the way around the Fertile Crescent to Babylon, to the the, um, east. And then it would connect down to Egypt. And people were passing by Nazareth all the time. That meant that people were stopping there all the time. And many of the people who stopped there were people that were up to no particular good when it came to moral issues. Soldiers on their way down to Egypt or back up from Egypt. And merchants who were there without their wives and their families and the like would come to Nazareth. And it became known then as a place with great wickedness. It had no great reputation. It had a very poor reputation. So anyone who was a Nazarite or a Nazarene from Nazareth, a Nazarene, anyone who was a Nazarene would be despised, would be rejected. 
This is not the place for Messiah to live. But God in his providence brought Jesus here. That makes, if, if you look at the map, it makes utterly no sense for somebody living in Nazareth to have to come down to Bethlehem, but the ruling authorities demanded it and Jesus is born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. And it makes no sense coming out of Egypt that he would live in Nazareth. Bethlehem's a lot closer. There's family ties there, and it's so fitting for Messiah. But providentially, God brings Jesus to Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene. As you say that word, at least in your mind, you just sneer. This is one rejected. This is one that is not esteemed, but one living in a city that's despised. As Isaiah said in his prophecy 53, for he grew up before him, Messiah grew up before God the Father like a young plant, like a sprig, like a shoot. Vulnerable, tender, but alive. He this sprig was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not, Isaiah says. Isaiah says this long before Christ is born. And how would this ever be fulfilled in the life of Christ but to land in Nazareth? The word itself connecting not to Nazarite, that mistake has been made that this means Jesus was consecrated to God as a Nazarite, taking the Nazaritic vow, that type of thing. No, Nazareth is connected rather to the term for branch. The branch coming out of David's stump, despised and rejected, being raised now in Nazareth. God pointing us unmistakably to this one as the one who fulfills prophecy. This one now identified as Messiah. This one who has come out of Egypt. This one who is to be despised and rejected. And in that rejection will provide redemption for his people as the new sprout out of the stump of David. So Jesus was despised indeed by a world that rejected his righteous teaching. As he was rejected by Herod who wanted to kill him so he would be rejected by ruling authorities who would eventually arrange his crucifixion. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Let's put it to death. God the Father providentially sparing his son from Herod's rage in Matthew 2 preserves that tender sprig from David's tree. But as the book of Matthew closes, the father does not spare his son and governing authorities torture and execute him. Further, the Son of God suffers God's wrath in the place of sinners, so fulfilling redemption's purpose. In all of this, in preparation for that day, God preserves that tender, despised shoot, now fulfilling prophecy, that shoot out of the stump of King David's lineage. 
And as we think on this, there are, are so many points of application, but we certainly see here to think of the raging forces set against this baby. The raging forces seeking to kill him. It reminds us that God is our sufficient protection and hope in all circumstances. Like that tender sprig, Jesus of Nazareth, we too are vulnerable and weak. We cannot guarantee our lives. We are not in control. But there's a God who is. There's a God who is. And until God removes his hand, we are indeed invincible in some sense of the term. Now, that does not mean we throw caution to the wind. We don't see Joseph here sipping iced tea with his feet up on the table saying, I'm invincible. I, nobody can touch us. No, we see him leaving in the middle of the night escaping to Egypt, being thoughtful about where they re-land, using his mind, his abilities to think through this, and of course, obviously, the direction of the Lord helping him there. That invincibility does not eliminate the pursuit of ways and means to avoid capture. What I mean by that is what we've sung earlier this morning, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. It doesn't matter if we're a little sprout that could get stepped on, cut so easily and die. If God is in the position of protecting us, there is nothing that can withstand Him. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever Pluck me from his hand. Ever. Nothing. So let's maintain the right balance. It's not, I, I just sit around and say, God will protect me. I do whatever I want to do. And I'm, I'm just, no. We use ways and we use means, but we know at the end of the day, there's a sovereign God who is our protector. And that sovereign God protected his son until it was time to stand back and let him die. And that God who protected Jesus is the God in whom we may seek refuge and rest at peace. Not in a peaceful world. Not in the midst of all this warmth and everything working out so beautifully. But in a world that is raging against God. There we find a calm in his hand. And there, until our time is up, we are invincible. No matter how weak. Let us then, with the psalmist, say this as we reflect on these ideas. Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. That the Father did for the Son. And that the Lord does for his people. Until, as we sang, 
till he returns or calls me home. In him I rest. In him alone I trust. Let's pray. We are grateful, Father, for your goodness to us in Christ, for your faithfulness to us, for the redemption that is in his name and for the protection that we enjoy in this fallen and broken world. And Lord, our thoughts turn to our brothers and sisters, some of whom are right now being killed, some are being imprisoned, those little sprouts, those little sprigs through this world that are trampled by authorities and crushed for nothing more than their belief in your name. Father, we grieve with them. We weep with the mothers who have lost their children, with the children who have lost their fathers, with the churches who have lost their leaders because of Satan's rage against your people and your purposes. We live in this world to exercise dominion, the dominion of grace, to bring kindness and goodness and mercy into this world, to be salt and light, to preserve and protect and illumine this world, and yet we live in a world that answers with hostility and rage. And we pray in behalf of those suffering churches and suffering Christian families throughout this world who are weeping today. We pray that you would lift their eyes and lift our eyes as we face continual derision in our culture. May we all lift our eyes and wipe our tears knowing that someday Christ will come. That there is a final accounting before his throne And that victory has been won. That death has been defeated by the Savior who died to pay the penalty of our sin and who rose again. May we find hope and joy in that message at this time of year as we consider what Christ did and how you preserved him and as we consider the life that he gave. Lord, until our time is up, we know that we remain in your hands and we rest there with thanksgiving. We pray that you draw to saving faith those who do not know Christ and show them this place of refuge and strength in the midst of weakness. And may we then point our way forward to that final day when we rejoice in your presence, free of the oppression, free of Satan's rage, and free to live sinlessly in your presence as the forgiven, as the redeemed. Through Christ we pray.